Please go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30, will be our sermon text for this morning. But before we read those verses, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do speak to us, that you have not left us to our own devices, you've not left us to figure out the world on our own, to figure out ourselves on our own, to figure out your salvation and your son on our own. We thank you for Jesus and uh, for speaking to us through him and for writing that down in the scriptures, that we might read the scriptures and hear your voice. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us now as we open up your word, as we read it, as we hear it, as we consider it, we pray that you would speak by your spirit to our hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 8, beginning with verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Maybe you remember the TV show that many of us grew up on, uh, Reading Rainbow. In every episode, LeVar Burton would introduce book reviews by saying, uh, but you don't have to take my word for it. 
And then various kids would come on and talk about books that they had read. We're not big on taking people's word for it. Uh, We want to verify the facts. And if we can't do it ourselves, we want some kind of independent verification. This makes sense, of course, because people can make mistakes. And in a fallen world, sometimes they lie. So verifying the words of others has a place. There is a limit to it, of course. If we had to verify every statement we heard, we would never stop verifying. Uh, There is a place for trust. There is a place for the authority of the expert. There is a place for submission to those in charge. Ultimately, though, to verify someone's words is a kind of admission that they may be wrong and that there is some standard above them by which we can test their truthfulness. So if I say this pulpit is 50 inches wide, you can get out a measuring tape and test the truthfulness of my words. My word is not the standard here. In this case, the measuring tape is. Or if I say the world's tallest building is in Dubai, you can Google it and test what I've said. Of course, in that case, the internet is the standard, which is a bit scary. Or if I say the world's longest beetle is the Titan beetle, you can ask Tommy McElrath, our resident entomologist, who is an authority on such things. But do you see the dilemma? How do you test God's word? If you test the veracity of someone's word by appealing to some higher authority, at some point, there is an authority above which you cannot go. In fact, as some have said, the very act of seeking to prove God's word by some independent verification is therefore to reject God as the highest authority because you are submitting his word to some authority that is supposedly higher. Now, this may seem a bit philosophical or technical, but believe it or not, it is the situation we find ourselves in when we get to John 8. Jesus says something about himself And the Pharisees reject Jesus' words as untrue. And again, as as philosophical or technical as it may sound, the, the basic question is actually rather simple, isn't it? How do we know Jesus' words are true? And how do we know that without appealing to some supposed authority above Jesus? Well, let's look at three reasons in our text, three ways that we know Jesus' words are true. Uh, One, the world makes sense in light of Jesus. Two, Jesus was sent by the Father who is true. And three, to know Jesus, look at the cross. Uh, First, the world makes sense in light of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is continuing to talk with the religious leaders in the temple. And right off the bat, we have one of Jesus' famous I am statements. Uh, They are famous because multiple times in John, Jesus uses this formula. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine, and so on. There are these bold assertions to who he is in vivid, picturesque language. What's more, they involve the phrase, I am, which seems to allude to the name for God, Yahweh, which means I am. So you have this vivid, picturesque language being used by Jesus, which simultaneously seems to be a claim to his divinity. Well, here, Jesus begins in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. Now, God's first command, you may remember in the beginning, was let there be light. Light is, is life-giving. Plants and people both require light to thrive. God is light, the scriptures say, and in him is no darkness at all. The psalmist says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, and in your light we see light. Isaiah prophesies about the coming light. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon it. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world, make no mistake, it is an extraordinary claim, one that no mere man should make. What would it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? The imagery of light in scripture is rich and it could take all of our time just to look at that. But for now, let's just ask this. What does light do? Light allows one to see. So Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. In John elsewhere, Jesus says, no one can work at night, John 9, 4. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, John 12, 35. And if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus says, but if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, John 11, 9 to 10. So light allows us to see so we can live and work and walk in the world. Also, light shows things for what they really are. Jesus said, uh, or John said in John 3, 19 through 20, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So light allows one to see, and it shows things for what they really are. It exposes them for what they really are. You can know how to walk rightly without stumbling only when you can see the ground at your feet. And one prophecy in Isaiah 2 says this, And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Isaiah goes on, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is at least a claim to enable people to see the world for what it is and so live in a way that we do not stumble and fall. Still, you might ask, what does that mean? Well, first, John, uh, Jesus came to show us the Father. John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to every world was coming into the world. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came into the world as light to make the Father known, to shed light on who God is. Second, Jesus came to show us the Father, but also to show us the way to the Father. So John 14, 5 through 6, Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus as light, he shows us the Father and the way to the Father because he is both one with the Father and the way to the Father himself. Jesus said at one point, 
uh, eternal life was to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So by coming to make the Father known, Jesus came to give us life. Now, I I called this point, the world makes sense in light of Jesus, and here's what I mean by that. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the world for what it is. You think perhaps this world is all there is. Everything has a scientific, mechanistic explanation. We came from nothing, we are headed to nothing. Or maybe you're a spiritual person and you believe in karma, that everyone gets what they deserve in the end. There's no personal deity, but if you're a good person, good things happen. But you see, this world is not all there is. Neither is there an impersonal karma ordering the universe. Rather, there is a personal God who is righteous and just, but who also offers forgiveness and grace. Every day, he is at work drawing people to himself, blessing, convicting, encouraging, strengthening, empowering, humbling, and so on. To understand what is really going on in the world, we need to look beyond mechanistic explanations. They can tell us something of what is happening, but they can't explain the deep why. And even the what they can, that they can explain leaves out what is most important. Jesus is the light of the world. If you want to know what God is doing, if you want to know what this world is about, if you want to see the world for what it is, if you want to understand sin and brokenness and pain and how they fit into the plan and purposes of God, if you want to know how to put one foot in front of the other without tripping over your own feet, that is, if you want to know how to live in God's world, if you want to know God and draw near to God, look to Jesus. Now, if you're still thinking, okay, but how do I do that? What does that look like? Uh, the, the short answer, of course, in part, is, is, is read the scriptures. The whole Bible, as it reveals Jesus, helps us understand the world in which we live. The Father's love, the Son's work, the Spirit's presence and power, God's great redemptive plan in which, in which we live, and the role that we play. If you want to see the world in light of Jesus, read the scriptures. Now, this language of light, by the way, is carried through to the end. Uh, Isaiah uh, says in Isaiah 60, verse 19, of the new creation, the sun shall be no more uh, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. And then in Revelation 21, 23, and the city, the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. See, Jesus shines forth the light of the Father that we might know God and walk in his ways and he will be light for us now and forever, the scriptures tell us. Now, how does this help us know that Jesus' words are true? That's the question that we started with. Well, in part, as C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see it because by it, I see everything else. See, when we come to see Jesus, the world begins to click into place. If you want to know that, then come to Jesus. Look to him. Begin to see all things in his light. And by the way, of course, thinking about Jesus as the light also illustrates why we can't appeal to something outside or above Jesus in order to prove Jesus' words are true. A flashlight is great for showing things in the dark. But if you bring a flashlight outside at noon, it will not help you see the sun. To see the brightness of the sun, you simply look at the sun and all things in its light. 
So how do we know that Jesus' words are true? Well, one way is because the world makes sense in light of Jesus. Second, Jesus was sent by the Father who is true. We're trying to see that the truthfulness of Jesus' words, uh, we're trying to see that that truthfulness without appeal to some higher authority than Jesus, because there is no higher authority than Jesus. But when Jesus makes this claim, I am the light of the world, the religious leaders of his day freak out. They say in verse 13, uh, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They believed, as scripture teaches, that every testimony has to be established by at least two witnesses. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day shoot down his testimony from the start. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What Jesus says next is key. And uh, slow down and and look at Jesus' words in verse 14. Uh, Jesus responds to them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You see, Jesus actually doesn't accept their demand for a second witness. He does that elsewhere. He'll do that in a minute, but not here, not yet. Jesus claims that apart from anyone else, his witness is true. Well, why? Because he knows where he came from and he knows where he is going. He came from the Father, as he's been saying. He is going back to the Father. He knows that. Therefore, his words are true. What Jesus is saying is he doesn't need anyone else to corroborate his witness to make it true. If the whole world were to deny Jesus and and not affirm what he was saying, his witness would still be true. In part, Jesus is here appealing to what we might call his his expertise or the authority of a specialist. He came from God and is going back to God. He is therefore qualified to speak about God. He of all people. This is what Jesus said back in John 3. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See, Jesus says, I am from heaven, and so I alone can speak to you of heavenly things. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, do not know these things. They don't know where Jesus came from, therefore they don't believe. They judge according to the flesh, Jesus says. That is, they consistently misunderstand how things really are because they can't see beyond what their eyes can see and their minds conceive. They judge according to the present age. It's almost a postmodern critique that Jesus is making, though. Jesus is saying, you are stuck in your own perspective. You judge according to your situation. On the other hand, Jesus says he judges no one. That's not why he came. Jesus says elsewhere, he did not come to judge the world but to save it. But even if he does judge, his judgment, unlike theirs, is true because he's not alone. He acts with the Father who sent him. Jesus has intrinsic authority. He came from heaven and can speak of heavenly things. But it's more than that. And so Jesus gets to their critique in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus says, "You, you want two witnesses? Fine. I bear witness about myself, and the Father bears witness about me. 
He calls it your law, not because it's not God's law. He and they are both appealing to the law of Moses, but to say the very law you believe in, it says two witnesses are sufficient. Well, here you go. I bear witness about me and the Father bears witness about me, two witnesses. Now, it's important to say that the language of two witnesses comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's actually about accusations. Deuteronomy 17, on the evidence of two witnesses or or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And of course, this principle is is picked up and continued in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Of course, this this idea of a charge is not really Jesus' situation here. There is no charge against him. Rather, there is a claim, a claim that he made, that he is the light of the world. And yet in God's world, since before time began, there have always been two or three witnesses, haven't there? Because Father, Son, and Spirit all knew all things and could each affirm what was true. And so Jesus appeals to the Father here, and he will talk about the Spirit later in John. And his point is, while Jesus' testimony is true, regardless of anyone else, he is truth whether people believe it or not. In fact, there are two witnesses, he and the Father. Now, the the next question of the religious leaders makes perfect sense from our point of view, doesn't it? Verse 19, they say, where is your Father? Okay, Jesus, produce your witness. Notice Jesus and his interlocutors are continually speaking on different planes. Uh, Jesus says, I speak from heaven, you judge according to the flesh. My father in heaven bears witness about me. Okay, Jesus, where is your father? Bring in your witness. And Jesus' response is not what you might expect. He, He doesn't say, oh, I mean my father in heaven. He doesn't explain himself. Why not? Because Jesus actually takes their question as an admission of guilt. You know neither me nor my father. Later in John, Jesus will talk about coming persecution in John 16, 3, and he'll say, they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. Their question here is is not a mere question or a mere statement for Jesus. It is evidence against them. You don't know me and you don't know my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. Later, Jesus will say to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But he is saying now, you don't see the Father because you don't see me. They can't interpret properly what is right in front of them. Their problem is not lack of evidence, as some allege. Jesus is standing in front of them in that moment, but they can't see him. Their eyes are blind to the light of the world. They don't know Jesus, and so they don't know the Father. Now, it likely would have been clear to them what Jesus just said. He just told the religious leaders, they don't know God. That is why the next words are so important. Jesus is speaking in the temple in verse 20, that is in public, but they don't arrest him. Despite his condemning words, uh, not because they're not angry, but because his hour had not yet come. They would have arrested him for those words, but God is sovereign over the timing and Jesus' time had not yet come. 
And so Jesus goes on to say that he is going away. Uh, He said this before, and they repeatedly mock him when he does. They say, what? Is he going to kill himself? Why can't we follow where he is going? And so Jesus clarifies. Here's the situation, verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He's saying, again, you judge according to the flesh and you misunderstand because you are from below and of this world. But I am not of this world. I am from above and I am going back. You can't follow me because you don't belong there. If you want to go where I am, you must believe in me, Jesus says. Otherwise, you will die in your sins. You see, the issue Jesus wants them to see is not, are there enough witnesses? Jesus is right in front of them, and they have no idea who he is. Adding more information is not going to clear things up. They can't digest the information that they have. The issue is this. They must believe in Jesus. They must believe, as Jesus says, that I am he. Now, uh, commentators debate just what Jesus means here when he says those words, I am he. Jesus' words could literally be translated, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And if that is correct, Jesus is making yet another claim to his divinity. And yet, let's leave that open for a moment, whether that's what he's saying or not. Just, Just think about it. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They respond, okay, who are you? At least they're asking the right question. But Jesus says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. In other words, I'm not, I haven't been keeping this a secret. I keep telling you who I am, but you refuse to believe me. Verse 26 basically means, look, there's, there's lots I could say here. But Jesus then, once again, defines himself in relation to his Father. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. This is what Jesus keeps saying after all. These three things. He was sent from the Father to speak the words of the Father and do the will of the Father and then he's going to go back to the Father. He says, I came from the Father. I'm doing the Father's will. I'm returning to the Father. So John 5, 43, he says, I have come in my Father's name and yet you do not receive me. John 6, 29, Jesus answers them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7, 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 7, 28 to 29, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. John 7, 33 to 34, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. See, who is Jesus? Who does Jesus say that he is? The one who came from the Father, speaks the words of the Father, and is returning to the Father. Unless they believe this, they will die in their sins. Unless you believe this, you will die in your sins. This is the claim of Jesus. Now, I realize you may be really frustrated at this point. I thought we were going to talk about how we can know that Jesus' words are true, and yet I am. How can we know they are true? One, because the the whole world makes sense only in light of Jesus. Second, Jesus was sent by the Father who is true. Okay, you say, but, but how do I know that Jesus was sent by the Father who is true? That brings us to the final point, point three, to know Jesus, look at the cross. They still don't get it. 
They don't understand that Jesus has been speaking to them about the Father, verse 27. And again, Jesus is speaking about things of heaven, but they have their minds on earth. And so Jesus keeps going in verses 28 to 29, and he says this, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus essentially says, here is when everything will become clear. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, when he goes to the cross and dies, then everything will become clear. Then you will know that I do not, uh, that I do not of my own authority then you will know that I speak just as the Father taught me. Then you will know that he who sent me is with me, that he has not left me alone. Then you will know that I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But we ask, well, why is that? How does Jesus being lifted up, how does the, how does the cross clear everything up? Because Jesus lifting up, which in John's gospel begins in the cross, when Jesus is lifted up physically from the earth, but continues in his resurrection and ascension, when Jesus again is physically lifted up and metaphorically exalted, lifted up as he's exalted and glorified, that shows that Jesus has obeyed the Father. He fulfilled the Father's plan to suffer and die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it pleased the Father, hence the resurrection and the ascension. See, the cross and the resurrection are the fulfillment of the Father's plan. They show Jesus as the one who did not come to do his own will, but the will of his Father. The will of the Father was that the Son should suffer for sin and rise on the third day, and so redeem those the Father had given to him. Jesus came to fulfill the Father's work, and he did just that. The Father did not ultimately leave him, but was pleased with Jesus' work and so raised him from the dead. If you want to know who Jesus is, look to the cross. There you will see Jesus doing exactly what the Father sent him to do. If you want to know who Jesus is, look to the resurrection. There you will see that the Father was pleased with his son and rewarded him by raising him up on the third day. If you want to know who Jesus is, look to the ascension where Jesus returned to the Father just as he said. He came from the Father and has returned to the Father. You see, if you want to know whether Jesus' words are true, there is no higher authority you can appeal to in order to test his words. But here's what you can do. Test Jesus by his own words. Test what Jesus has said by what Jesus has done. And he did exactly what he said he would do. Unless you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, Jesus himself says, you will die in your sins. But believe, and you will find forgiveness and the knowledge of God which is eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly in the cross and in the resurrection. We pray that you would help us to see these things and believe these things by the power of your spirit that in Jesus we might have eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.